Hi there, this is Watchin', and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for black women on the corporate climb. In today's episode, I got to have a conversation with someone who I consider a mentor and whose career I admire greatly, uh, Dee Anderson, who is currently an operations executive within asset and wealth management at JP Morgan. She's been with JP Morgan for quite some time. And so she's had an opportunity to have um, a few roles, including um, a commercial bank senior business manager for wholesale loans. She was the head of corporate and investment bank documentation management operations for the Americas. She was the head of global fixed income middle office Chicago, where her teams are responsible for managing multi-billion dollar programs and transactions. And Dee started her career in fixed income sales. At J.P. Morgan, she's also on several leadership teams and management development programs um, to help the next generation of leaders within her firm. Um, in addition to her work, Dee's also involved in external civic and community work, including being a board member and treasurer of the Just the Beginning Foundation, a member of the Posse Foundation Leadership Council, a member of the Economic Club of Chicago, a member of the National Association of Securities Professional, and a proud member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Dee has been in the financial services industries for well over 20 years, and she holds a Series 7 and her Series 63 license. She also holds an MBA from Purdue and a BS in economics from Hampton University. I had the best time talking to her and learning from her, and so hopefully um, you get the same from our conversation. So, Dee, thank you very much for being a guest on my podcast today. Um, glad that you made the time. I know your schedule is a little crazy right now. Um, and when I started thinking about the podcast, I think you were the first email that I sent out because I wanted someone who I knew would give like honest feedback on their experience where they currently are. So if you can talk about your first job in corporate, like how did that even happen? Mm-hmm. So um, thank you for being here. It, it is a pleasure, and I'm glad you thought of me. And hopefully... Um, <laughs> Um, I give you what you're looking for. But my first job in corporate actually started in high school. Okay. So in my junior year of high school, I was able to get a part-time job at what was then First Chicago, working on the trading floor after work. Okay. I had no idea what they did. I knew that they were very busy. I knew that it was a very exciting time. And I knew that they made a lot of money. And so... um, I got to know a little bit more, but frankly, the trading environment was over my head at the time. So I did, however, start to um, learn how to network a little bit, unknowingly, didn't know how to call it networking back then, and gained some of the advice of the people that I was speaking with in an effort to try and learn more about what they did and put myself in a situation where I could understand it. The advice at that time was to go to school and get a degree in economics or finance, and so that's what I did. I went to college, and I obtained a degree in economics, and then it all came together. It started to make sense. Okay, and at that time, did you know that you would come back into financial services banking in some capacity? I wasn't sure. I actually went on to Wayne State University in a PhD, to get a PhD in economics, Um, I found that it was not as fun as I thought it would be. (laughs) So my undergraduate experience was at Hampton University, which is an HBCU. Um, Wayne State's environment and culture was a bit different. Mm. All of the people in my discipline were not from the U.S., and so I had a very tough time navigating 
in figuring out who I could partner with to get through that program. So I stayed in the program for about a year and a half. My grandmother got ill in Chicago, and I used it as an excuse to come home. Mm. Wow. I did. Was that the end of the education pursuits, or did you... No, I ultimately went back and finished my MBA at Purdue University. Um, But when I came back, that's when I interviewed for a job again at First Chicago, this time as a sales assistant on the trading floor. Okay. And then you went back to get your MBA. Why? Later. It was necessary. Um, So the majority of my colleagues had graduate degrees, and I needed for people to understand that I was serious about what I wanted to do and that I wanted to be an expert in it, and I was willing to get whatever credentials were necessary to do that. So I did go back and get my MBA. I also had my Series 7, 63, um, to make sure that I was fully prepared for the opportunity when it came Got it. And so you're in an industry that's very male and very non-black. Um, so mm-hmm. how has mentorship and sponsorship helped you from, you know, when you first started to now you're the managing director of one of the largest financial institutions yeah. there is? Yeah, executive director. Executive director. <laughs> Not managing. Exactly. Executive. Okay. Um, but okay, what's the difference? So executive director is one level beneath managing director, actually. Okay. So managing director is the highest level you can attain in our company. Um, in general. I mean, there's some other ancillary things, but in general. So I, um, I forgot what your question Mentorship. Mentorships, yes. I'm sorry. Okay. Absolutely key. Okay. Absolutely. I didn't understand that as early as I wish I had. Mm-hmm. So I had unofficial mentors, um, meaning there were people that I would go to and get a little bit of advice, what I thought were mentors, but they were really advisors. And that they were people that could tell me some of the differences and what was going on within the workplace, but they really could not mentor me to tell me what to do to get to the next level. So they might tell me, oh, you need to become friends with this admin because then, you know, you'll have the opportunity to speak with her boss sometimes. So that was an advisor. That wasn't somebody that was teaching me how to navigate necessarily. So I, I later had to learn that there's a big difference between a mentor, a sponsor, and an advisor. Mm-hmm. And that an advisor is really good at helping you figure out the who's who. The mentor really might be able to tell you how to do your job better. Mm-hmm. Some of those things that can help you propel in your career a bit. Mm-hmm. But the sponsor is really that person that has the political capital to spend on you that they're willing to put on the line, that can pick up the phone and make a call and say, do something, change this, she's deserving, give her an opportunity. That's a sponsor. And so I just didn't really understand that difference until a little bit later in my career. Otherwise, I thought if I work hard and I got good reviews and people noticed that that was sufficient, it wasn't. So you really have to work hard and have the right sponsorship to move you further along in your career. And I know a question that comes up all the time is like, well, how do I find those people? How do I get those people? For you, what did that look like? Yeah. So my first mentor officially was kind of funny. Um, So Jamie had become CEO of Bank One, and he was doing these roundtable discussions. And somehow um, I got the opportunity to participate in one of these. And I think I sounded so pitiful in this roundtable discussion (laughs) Um, because the, you know, I I was just junior. You know, and so um, the discussion was for all levels, 
And so it was fine that I was junior. But the way that I articulated things and some of the things that I said just sounded very junior. Mm-hmm. There was a woman at the table at the time. Her name was Sandy Van Gilder. And she literally was like, I need to get her some help. Like, she's doing it. She's, mm-hmm. you know, she's doing a good job, but she needs some help. And what she meant by that was, despite my potential, I lacked executive presence. And so it's one thing to be smart. It's another to understand how to articulate what you're doing in a way that people can receive it. And so that is what I was lacking. So she assigned a woman to me by the name of Laura Stone, who was a very senior managing director in the company and a very gracious woman, just phenomenal. And Laura would meet with me and I would tell her all the problems and why things weren't working and she was so kind. She would sit there and listen, and at the end of the conversation, she would say, so what are you going to do? And I'd be like, what do you mean? That's why I'm talking to you. You're supposed to tell me what to do. You're my mentor. Like, your job is to tell me what to do. And so she was like, I am not going to tell you what to do. I am here to help you figure out what is the best thing to do. And so I had my share of managerial issues, and she would tell me things like, kill them with kindness be an expert and I'd be like no you don't understand they're so mean you know they don't like me um but I eventually got it and I actually I just stopped whining and just started listening and it changed from literally things changed from there going forward that's when I started getting promoted started getting more recognition started volunteering for things that weren't the prettiest projects Um, but started doing things where people outside my immediate chain of command could see what my potential was. Mm -hmm. That was a game changer. And have any of your mentors, sponsors, or advisors been black women? Oh, yeah. So Laura was not a black woman. She was the first woman that really took me under her wings. But since then, oh, yeah, I've certainly created my own personal board of directors. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily tell people you're on my board. But because it's, you know, it's a little hard sometimes when you go to somebody that is very accomplished and busy and you say, will you be my mentor? And the first thought is like, oh, boy, do I have time for this? You know, do I have the capacity for this? But instead, if you build a relationship based off of whatever other opportunities you have to build that relationship, then it's different. So I started to build relationships with people who I thought were very good at what they did, were very well respected at what they did, and frankly had something to offer me, and I tried desperately to figure out what I could give back to them. Mm. And so some of the things that I could give back to them were usually in the form of volunteering for some initiative or something that they were trying to do that they frankly didn't have time for. From there, that catapulted me into a series of career development programs where I launched some things, designed some things, all in an effort to help women in the organization. That help, while it warmed my heart, also put me in a position where a ton of people were like, oh, Dee Anderson knows that. Dee Anderson can help you do this. Dee Anderson can do that. And so that gave me the recognition at a senior level that I would never have had had I just done my job. Yeah. And I would say, like, my mentors have found me while I was doing work. Mm-hmm. Right? So I've been, you know, whether it's board volunteering, we met, mm-hmm. doing volunteer opportunities yeah. through the Posse Foundation. And so when younger girls are like, what do I, how do I get a mentor? I'm like, do something. Be, be someone who is worth mentoring. Be seen. Will find you. Yes. They will. They will. Be seen. Um, and one of the things, so you talked about 
saying things so that um, you can actually be heard. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that always comes up is like the stereotype of like the angry black woman and how mm-hmm. certain cultures it seems like have more freedom to be their authentic selves in the workplace. Yeah. So is that have you found that you've adjusted your communication style as you've gotten more senior? Are there yeah. things that you, that you think about consciously? Yeah. So I think lots of things adjust in life. Period. Right. So when you're young, you think one day, one way and you communicate one way. And as you age and you obtain more wisdom, experience, exposure, then you just think differently. Right. So it's I think that we get very caught up in, you know, being our authentic selves. You can be your authentic self. But the question that I think people need to fundamentally ask themselves is what game am I trying to play, though? So do I want to be in this circle? And if I do, what are the requirements to be in that circle? Mm-hmm. And how, when is it most appropriate to be completely authentic, like, like I am with my homegirls? Mm-hmm. Or when is it appropriate to be authentic in my business person, whoever that is? Mm-hmm. And so I, I applaud people for being authentic. You absolutely should. That is the way you build relationships. Mm-hmm. That is how people understand who you are. And being consistent is very important. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you come to work talking about Ray Ray. That's not work. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, be it a little bit conservative, I understand. I believe that you speak the language for what it is you are trying to be a part of. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. If you go to Russia and you speak English, then you might be able to communicate with some people. But if you're going to navigate and learn how to operate there, you might have to learn a little Russian. Mm. It's true. It's true. And I think it's so hard for people, right? Because right now the media is like, bring your whole self to work. And that's the narrative that's out there. And it's like, but remember the environment and And, what you want. Yeah, that that can be confusing. So bringing your whole self, I agree. You, You don't want to come to work and put on such a show that it takes work to come to work, mm. right? So your whole self um, means that you don't necessarily need to hide who you are, but you also don't come to work, you know, talking about whatever guy you dated this weekend in a one-night stand or whatever, whatever those things are. Mm. Um, I just don't think that's necessary. So the question is, when you're not in the room, what is it that you want people to say about you? And I think that story should be consistent. I think it should be the same outside as it is inside. And so whoever you want to be outside, I mean, that's who you are. But I don't, so I'm not saying that you should change who you are. But I am saying that, you know, in one environment versus another, when you're interacting with people different, then it's different parts of you that you showcase. Yeah, and being cognizant of like, the impression that you are leaving, right? Is it consistent with what you want yes. people to remember about you or associate with you when you are not around? So true. It's so hard to change impressions. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is we all have unconscious biases, these stories that we make up about people before we know anything about who they are. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first thing that I'm dealing with is whatever somebody's unconscious biases of me. Mm-hmm. And so do I want to feed into it or just want to be who I am and allow them to get to know me for who I am? Mm-hmm. That first. Get to know me first before first. your judgment. Yes. Um, so we talk about a, a few things that you've developed over the way, but are you, um, can you think of some tangible skills that you've had to develop over your careers so that you can be successful where you sit now? 
Yeah, I think in general, emotional intelligence is very important. What does that mean? That means that understanding um, how to empathize with whatever the situation is, right? So in general, I'm, I'm a director kind of person. I'm anxious to get the work done, get it right. Mm-hmm. But if somebody comes in my office and they say, oh, you know, I'm having a really hard time, my child is sick, my whatever, I can't just be like, okay, go to work. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's okay you're late, just go to work, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I have to understand that if I don't make a human connection with people, then they aren't going to want to follow me. They're going to feel like I don't care. And I do care, but I have to temper myself to get out of my director mode Mm -hmm. and make sure that I am connecting with people in whatever way they need to be connected with. Mm -hmm. That is what I have to do as a leader. Mm -hmm. It is fundamental, is absolutely necessary. My personality type is to respond to an email and ask for exactly what I want. I have to go back, though, and put, hello, how are you? Hope you're having a good day. <laughs> right? Because people want to feel acknowledged. They want to feel human. They want to feel like you care. And we all want to get the work done and do a good job. But when you miss that level of human connectivity, it makes it really challenging. Yeah, I know I've gotten emails back that's like, good morning to you too, watching. I'm like, yes. oh, yes. God, just exactly. got to the point. Yeah, so I think emotional intelligence is very important for leaders. Um, I think understanding your strengths is important because I need to fill the gaps in areas that I'm not strong in. Mm-hmm. So I'm really good at the numbers. I'm really good at the vision. Mm-hmm. I'm really good at putting things together for us to figure things out. The operating model, the strategy, mm-hmm. I hate putting it in PowerPoint. <laughs> I hate putting it in presentation mode. Mm-hmm. I'm a better speaker than I am putting things on paper. So I can lay out the framework, but I know that that's not where I'm best spending my time. And so if I don't know that about myself, then I'm just spending a lot of time. So I need to figure out what my strengths are, what the strengths are of the people on my team, and learn how to leverage those. One, so that people are happier. Nobody wants to do something they're bad at all day. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, so I can get the best of them and they can get the best of me. So we can fit the things that we do together as much as possible like a puzzle. Got it. And you mentioned team. I think everyone thinks that they want to manage people, right? Because a lot of people have not managed people. So for you, what has been the, the thing that's challenged you or stretched you the most when you came to a position where you started to manage and navigate other people's careers? Yeah, we're human. And so human beings are complex. And although um, we believe that we pick the best candidates, right? I literally, with my directs, will sit down and Every year, as part of our strategy session, we will determine what does the ideal candidate look like for you. We're not hiring right now, or what, or maybe not even tomorrow. But if we had, if we could build the ideal person, what skill set do they have? What do they do? And just knowing that, putting that on paper and understanding what that is, helps you to develop the people that you have and helps you make good decisions as you go forward hiring. But people managing is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. It is not um, always fun. It's very challenging. You think people are in line, marching to the same beat, and then every now and then you're like, we're not going that way. (laughs) Like, how'd you get that idea? Where'd that come from? And, you know, you can't say that, but the truth of the matter is because they're human beings. Mm -hmm. And they get distracted. And so... 
constantly bringing people back to where you need them to be mm-hmm. is what takes a good amount of time. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then, so for you, as you've developed, right, I think everyone thinks that they're ready for promotion all the time. They're like, I've met all the, the requirements, I've checked all the boxes. When you either felt stuck or you've been doing something for a while, how do you know when you're ready to move to the next level? So I think a couple things. Um, in this company in particular, the promotion criteria is very clear. Mm. There's no question. Okay. It's like these are all the things you need to be doing. Here are all the ways that you need to measure it. And so I will not even have a promotion conversation if somebody has not taken that free public information mm-hmm. and compared their current job scope, skills, responsibilities against what this company has already laid out. Because I can't even take you to a committee or to HR and say this person's ready for promotion if you have not done that. And it's not about meeting the minimum requirements because you already get paid for that part. Say that again. Oh, You already get paid for meeting the requirements. It is exceeding them and doing something beyond what everybody else is doing that also gets paid for that job which makes you worthy of promotion in my mind. So the fact that you came in well-educated does not mean that everything that you know is applicable to what you're doing, right? If you have a, if I came in with this PhD in economics, it's, I'm not writing economic reviews. I don't work in research where they really value a PhD in economics. I was on the market side where I'm trading. So I don't, may not get paid for the PhD. I get paid for the job that I took, and that's a whole nother conversation about people that feel like they get very well educated, they come into these jobs, and they're like, they don't even pay me for what I'm worth. You signed up for this. You said, I'm going to apply for a job at this level. You got in at that level, and now you should be compensated for what you signed up for until you do something beyond that. It's a hard, hard conversation. It's it's a very hard conversation, but it's it's the reality. You know, if you're a gardener, but you get a job doing banking and you fix the flowers for us on the floor and they're really pretty, then thank you. But this is the part, the banking part is the part that I need you to focus on. Mm -hmm. And so you may be a very well, you know, trained landscaper, but that's not the part that we brought you in for. So it's a little hard to disconnect that, particularly in the field of business because it can be very general in a lot of ways. Um, but in more cases than not, when you come in to do a function, the function is relatively specific. Mm-hmm. So for the women who are listening who think, okay, I've been at this thing for this long and this job for this long, and I'm thinking about the next steps, what things should they be considering and making sure that they are excellent app before even approaching their managers about a conversation. Yeah, so promotion is really about um, preparedness coupled with opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? And so you need to be prepared for when the opportunity comes. That's the first and foremost. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I really believe in having your own personal board of directors, and it needs to be diverse, Mm -hmm. just like any company. And they need somebody to cover audit. They need somebody to cover compensation, they need somebody to cover uh, operating models, they need somebody to cover the markets, whatever Mm -hmm. that is, Mm -hmm. we need to think about that for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So on my board of directors, I have a judge, I have somebody else in finance and banking, I have somebody inside my company, somebody outside my company. I don't necessarily convene them together, sometimes we do with some girls dinner or something like that, but the truth of the matter is I draw from them different things. 
That judge has no idea what I do in my workplace, but she sure has helped me understand better how to communicate with people and leverage thoughts and ideas and and convince people why they should follow me instead of going some other way or, or however that works. And so the people aspect of it, I, I love talking to her about because she makes me think about things in ways that I frankly didn't consider because I work in a bank. And banks are very structured. And so I think structured. And so she takes me out of that structure to make me think about other ways that I can be beneficial to people and maybe get something back. And that's how you should think about it. First, what am I giving? And what do what what are people benefiting from my presence before you think about what I need? It's it's just it's a different kind of relationship building and I think it's important. And that's like outside of promotion, just in the workplace. That's in the in workplace general. period. In life, right? It's you always think about what you can give first and inevitably it comes back to you in some shape yeah. or form, but not like what can I take, take, Because again yeah. that's another perception thing that like she's always taking. Yeah. And so thinking about that. Um, yeah, so the board of directors is, is so key. And then um, finding those sponsors inside. And the way to find sponsors is to work hard. Work hard, get feedback, understand that feedback is such a gift. It is an amazing thing if you go and you give a presentation and everybody says, oh, that was really good. But then somebody comes back and says, you need to think about your opening. You need to think about your inflection points. And even though we got it for a good presentation, you might want to consider these things. It's easy to be like, well, everybody else said I did good, so why do I need to consider that? So I think that people really need to take all feedback and consider it. Don't respond. Just consider it. Consider that somebody else took your delivery in a different way. And it doesn't mean that you're always going to be able to please everybody. I get that. But you should still consider it. Considering the feedback. And asking for feedback. I think feedback is hard because people take it personally. Yes. Right? And, and as opposed to thinking of this is a way that I could potentially improve from someone who's been there before. It's yeah. like, oh, they don't, it's a it's a character judgment. Yeah. Or I, I failed as opposed to this element of my presentation could have been better. Exactly. Um, were you always good with receiving feedback? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't. Um, the, the hard part is deciphering between what is good feedback and what you think somebody's biases are about you mm-hmm. and what you think somebody's ill intent might be about you. Mm-hmm. And so I think in my younger days, I was like, she just doesn't like me. She's a hater. She's a hater. <laughs> right. And so I'd be like, whatever. Yeah. And that, But the thing is, it's a real slap in the face when somebody who you know has your best interest at heart mm. says something similar, like, uh-oh, somebody actually told me that years ago. Mm. And I I was not ready to receive it. Mm -hmm. And so I think preparing yourself to be ready to receive it first. And then you can put it in whatever buckets in your mind it belongs in. Mm -hmm. But listen first. And we talk about readiness a lot. Do you think if you had gotten this specific job 10 years ago, you would be as good at it as you are now? No. Why? We talked a little bit about executive presence and I think I am a natural extrovert with my friends and naturally shy in a more formal business setting and so I was more reserved I lacked
lacked confidence. I knew what I knew, but I was afraid that if I spoke up, that somebody was going to say something about my not being correct or or whatever that was. And so it took me a while to look at some of my counterparts and say, well, he says dumb things all the time. (laughs) And sometimes people call him on it, but mostly they're like, whatever, that's who he is. Mm -hmm. But he's still good at this. And I, that's the same thing that I want, is not to say the dumb things, mm-hmm. but for people to be forgiving of things mm-hmm. when I do. But the only way that they can do that is to hear me say things that are relevant and things that might not be relevant, mm-hmm. right? So if I only reserve myself for speaking up every now and then, then I'm not building enough credibility to allow a dumb thing to come out every now and then. And so I wasn't prepared because I hadn't built up my credibility yet. And I hadn't built up that credibility yet because I lacked confidence. So I had enough confidence to know that I was an expert at what I did. I absolutely knew what was happening in my markets and on my team. But I lacked lacked confidence outside of that comfort zone. And so it's a little challenging, but we have to teach ourselves how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. What are some intentional things you did to build your confidence? I started putting myself in more uncomfortable situations, and I still do today. I spoke on a panel yesterday with some dynamic people, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this is what these people do every day. What do I have to contribute to this conversation? Really? Yes. Um, But then I said to myself, you know what? You need to stop doubting your experience. You need to stop doubting your wisdom, stop doubting your exposure. Mm -hmm. And guess what? If they do it every day and you don't, they should be better than you. Mm-hmm. They should be. And so I have to say to myself, it doesn't matter. If I screw it up, and I have to beg to come back and fix it. Mm-hmm. If I don't screw it up, then I will have put myself in front of people and they will remember something that I said. And that's all I'm asking. And I think it's so refreshing to hear that because where I sit, I think everybody at your level has it together. Like, oh, they haven't figured out that's how they got there. And so the fact that you're still hyping yourself up before you go out to speak and reminding yourself of your word, to me, it takes a little pressure off to be like, okay, yeah. I don't have to like give up the perfectionism kind no. of thing. It just... No. I think, I mean, I, I am a perfectionist in that I, in preparedness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I knew I was speaking. I spent probably an hour and a half like, okay, if they ask you this, what would you say? So that's just my personality type. Yep. But I will say things get easier and easier. Okay. They get easier. The first time you ride a bike, you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to fall and scrape my knee. The second time, you're like, I did scrape my knee, but it healed now. Mm. Right? And then the third time, you're like, I got this. Your confidence is... You will build confidence the more you do something. And so my shying away from things that may be beneficial for me and my career mm-hmm. is not going to help me move forward. I can't shy away anymore. I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't want to not be promoted and not attain whatever success is in my mind until I'm ready to retire. I want to do that now. I'm anxious to do it now. I'm willing to put the work in. I'm willing to be consistent about it. I'm willing to get the help for it. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's such a great segue to my next question. What keeps you excited about being in corporate, right? Right now, entrepreneurship is all the rage. Everyone's talking about leaving and the freedom and all the things that they get and all that stuff. What still keeps you excited being in corporate for as long as you've been? 
Yeah. You know what? I, I would love to be an entrepreneur, too. Okay. But I'll say this. I've had my um, semi-entrepreneurial moments here. Okay. And what I mean by that is the team that I'm leading now is a team that I started from scratch. That you started? It, yes. Oh, my gosh. We literally had nothing. Not a single procedure, not an operating model. There was a pilot that was done. There were a lot of things that went right with a pilot, a lot of things that didn't. So it is entrepreneurial in that way. Mm-hmm. The difference is I have a guaranteed paycheck while I'm trying to figure it out. Mm. I absolutely think that I could be an entrepreneur, but I will say part of the reason that I am still here is I have figured out how to leverage the resources of this company to do things that are important to me. Mm. And so there is a whole lot of things wrong in the world. There's poverty, there's hunger, there's famine still in some parts of the world. There's um, misconduct all over the place. Um, There are multitude of issues that still exist around race and class and and religion. Um, But I have been able to figure out how to use the resources of this company to create volunteer activities in my communities, to figure out from a philanthropic perspective where we can help people that really need help that's so important to me. I've had the chance to work with Posse for years. I put, I host the award ceremony every year. I love sitting down there crying for two or three hours <laughs> watching kids and families get an opportunity that they otherwise would never have had. So those things are that are important to me, I have learned how to make important for my organization. And that is a game changer for me. I love being able to do that. That warms my heart. It keeps me going. I'll come in here and work 12 hours a day. If you're going to give some kids tuition, the ones that live next door to me, by the way, that otherwise would never have an opportunity, if you will help those men that went to prison on some drug charge, three strikes you're out because now they got a ticket and couldn't pay it, and now they've been in prison, they come out, now they have a felony and they can't get a job. But if I can help you find the value in helping people like that, that's a win for me. So could you do that as an entrepreneur? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are game-changing entrepreneurs. It just hasn't been my path. We need them. I admire them. I want to help them, too. My path has just been different. Got it. Got it. And then I would be remiss, and people would probably kill me if I didn't ask this question. So I think the biggest conflict for black women in corporate is our hair, mm-hmm. right? So I'm thinking, I want to get braids for the summer, but I'm with white male executives all the time and so do you even think about your hair has it changed as you've gotten more senior what has been your hair journey hair is a problem (laughs) hair is a problem for black women because we want to exercise and we can't yes it messes up the hair so i it is a problem i don't disagree in the summer i wear my hair natural okay the biggest thing that we need to consider is for your hair to be neat doesn't matter what style it's in doesn't matter if it's natural or straightened or whatever it is but it needs to be neat you can't come in looking like you just got off the treadmill true you just can't right so there are perceptions that people have but particularly if you're in a client facing role then you just need to look neat i mean if you when you go to the hospital and you see two doctors and one's tatted up the arm around the head down the other side you know ring nose hanging out you're like damn i hope he's good because he does not look the part Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
That's just what you hope. And you trust that he has his credentials because he's there. And you trust that he knows what he's doing. But it's not in your mind, and I'm sorry to say, the world has put this perception in our heads of who people should be. But you will, I promise you, doubt something. You'll be like, I don't know about this guy. You know, is medicine really his focus? And so there's nothing wrong with people tatting themselves or whatever if that's, if that's what they choose to do. But the question is, who is it that you're trying to gain the confidence of? And how flexible are you going to be to gain that confidence? And so it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, get a perm and do whatever. But it does mean that you need to present yourself in whatever way you want them to receive you. So if you want them to think you roll out of the bed and that's just how it is for you, then maybe you need to not be in a client-facing role. Maybe you need to be in, you know, 1871 behind the scenes building tech applications or whatever that is. But I think that you need to make yourself presentable for whatever you're presenting. Because that's the thing, too. Like in the mornings, I'm like, I want to walk to work, but I don't have a relaxer. So by the time I get to work, my hair's afro. I'm like, I can't blow it out every day. What am I going yeah, to do? I think, I think braids are fine. I think everything's fine if it's neat. Braids, dreads, natural, straight, just neat. Because mm-hmm. there seems to be a black female executive corporate hairstyle. We have two choices. The short pixie, <laughs> right? Or the long glove. But we're starting to see that change a little bit more. Yeah. But it is. It's always neat. It's always well kept. Yeah. I think um, it's changing a lot. Look, this is this is T. Duckett. She is president of oh, Chase Consumer and Community Bank. Did you hear me? President. Mm. I don't know of another woman that has held that sort of position in the banking industry. But it's summer. She exercises. She has braids. Hmm. T, you are my inspiration now. I'm getting my braids tomorrow. (laughs) That's phenomenal. Okay, so we're going to do a quick lightning round. And it's just like the first thing that comes to mind, Uh answer it. Um, So what's one, what's the one piece of career advice that took you the long, uh, that you took looking back that you wish you hadn't? Having foresight, insight, and taking action. Hmm. Huh. Say that again. Having the foresight mm-hmm. to understand what I needed to do, mm-hmm. what's coming, insight to understand how to do it mm-hmm. and what was required, and taking action to ensure that I get things done. Mm-hmm. I just didn't, I just had not put those together. Mm-hmm. Is there a piece of advice that you got, that you took, that now where you sit where you say you're like, I shouldn't have done that? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think any time that I have sort of stepped into a pool that I wasn't ready to be in. Mm -hmm. But I will say sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Mm -hmm. It it really depended on what it was. But one of the things that I think I needed to do better that I may have missed the mark on is I am so worried about being prepared that I'm overly prepared and Mm -hmm. everybody doesn't demand that. So I had a manager one time where I'd prepare all this stuff, particularly for my uh, personal reviews, and he wouldn't look at any of it. Oh. And I'd be like, no, but I want to show you what I did. And he'd be like, I already know what you did. And I'd be like, no, but you didn't know this part because you're in New York and I'm in Chicago, so I'm going to show you. And he'd be like, D, we don't need it. And my feelings were hurt. because I worked hard on it. Yes, I spent time putting all this stuff together. But 
just reading people the right way. So now I, I tend to try to put people into these four categories. Are they an analyzer, director, you know, more um, of a comfort person? And that changes my approach and, frankly, how I, what I deliver to them. Um, what's the one book that has had the biggest career impact for you? Expect to Win by Carla Harris. Expect. Oh, I have that book. And she's a Okay. Um, and then lastly, what do you hope people are saying about you when you are not in the room? I hope that they are saying that she's a hard worker. She's very considerate. She's a leader and dependable. That's my last question. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. If you want to keep the conversation going, please join us in our Facebook group, I Choose the Ladder, where we talk about all the gems and the lessons that we learn from each of the women. Until next time, thank you for listening.